0: Welcome to Holy Smoke, the spectator's religion podcast. I'm Damien Thompson. Dr Jordan Peterson, the Canadian psychologist, whose recipes for moral, philosophical and physical survival in the 21st century have inspired hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people, and whose attacks on gender ideology have driven the woke round the bend, is experiencing a serious crisis. Health problems mean that he lives in extreme pain every day, and, as he admits, such prolonged physical and existential misery has led him to consider moving beyond his own philosophy, which draws very heavily on the writings of Carl Gustav Jung, in favour of actual Christian belief and observance. Peterson is an important figure. His conversion would be a very significant one, And here to discuss the extraordinary paradox of Jordan Peterson, the agnostic is a more effective Christian apologist than almost any Christian in the media you care to name, is a former Jungian who turned to Christianity himself. And that is our old friend Dr Gavin Asherton, former chaplain to the Queen. So Gavin, it was you who alerted me to this extraordinary episode of the Jordan B. Peterson podcast in which Jordan's talking about, essentially, a crisis of health, of self-confidence, of morale and faith that Jordan Peterson's been experiencing, and you can actually see it, because as soon as you switch on YouTube, you're shocked by his gaunt appearance and by his obvious mental distress. He actually stops for long periods, looks into space, can't get his words together, tells us he's having problems with memory. He's had horrible health problems over the last year or so. And so he's talking to his friend Jonathan Padgeot, who's an Orthodox Christian, about how Jordan Peterson's own fundamental grounding in the thought of Carl Gustav Jung is leading him to think about the symbolic language in Christianity and kind of make the leap of faith from regarding Christianity as a massively useful symbolic archetype to something which might be literally true and require a different sort of participation, different sort of allegiance. Or He would cease to be an outsider commenting on church affairs albeit an outsider whose commentaries on church affairs have a far greater audience than anybody inside the church talking about church affairs to maybe going to church which is something he's tried and he's been very very uncomfortable when he does it. I don't like going to church either. I'm uncomfortable when I'm in there. And you drew my attention to this, Gavin, because I know that you're very interested in the writings of Jung, which I must say I find fairly indigestible, but then I don't find either <laughs> Freud or Jung particularly interesting. I should do because they have had such enormous influence, but I just keep thinking in terms of them as a, a, you know, an alternative religious belief system rather than the basis for medical therapy, which they often are. I've had a few therapists in my time and I, thank god none of them have submitted me to the liturgies and the ritual practices of formal psychoanalysis because i think that would be my money just going straight down the drain anyway gavin i wonder if you could explain why this caught your attention and why you drew my attention to it
1: well firstly i have some skin in the game um for 20 years i i lectured in the psychology of religion at one of our more radical universities and for about 10 years I, I was a paid up Jungian I gave up orthodox Christianity because I found the overlap between mental illness and and spiritual discernment too difficult to manage and Jung gave me a let out which I cowardly I cowardly grabbed do you mean um, your
0: mental illness
1: no, no, I was, although, although my mental stability is not all that it should be. Well, um, join no, the club. No, <laughs> no it, it was... Um, I encountered a very serious mental illness in my immediate circles, uh, both professional and personal, and, and just, just found the difficulty of, of telling the difference between implementing a spiritual metaphysical language at the same time as exercising well-informed clinical psychological analysis, I found that too difficult, so I opted for the psychology as a way out. And then, in my own experience was, I, I then had a, a very nasty encounter with real evil uh, about 10, 15 years ago, and I had to give up Jung because of it. I needed to come back to deal with it.
0: Well, what so was that? Do you mind telling us what this encounter was? Um,
1: I, well, I'm embarrassed to say that I, that I had a number of encounters with demons and uh, uh, and high-octane oppression, and in a way that took me to talk to some of my close friends who happened to be Catholic diocesan exorcists and who recommended Our Lady and the Rosary. And as I had tried therapy and pills... <laughs> Without a great deal of success, I was very willing to to, to try Our Lady in the Rosary, and it, it worked so effectively. It propelled me on the road to Catholic faith, and also also brought me firmly back into uh, Orthodox metaphysics. And the reason that matters is because Peterson is is on a parallel track. So he's doing the Jungian stuff, and he's doing it extremely well. In fact, he's probably the most effective evangelist in the world today. He's a kind of second millennium Billy Graham. And what's what's funny about it, if funny is the wrong word, what's what's bizarre, is that he's not a Christian and says he's not. Although I mean our, our readers may not know that the Christian community across the world has been who follows Jordan Peterson has been on tenterhooks to discover whether he is a Christian or not, because he talks about believing in Christ, he talks about the resurrection, he he uses Christian insights theology and philosophy to buttress his attack on wokery marxism 2.0 and, and so you would expect him to be a believer but but actually he's not because he's he's given up atheism but like cs lewis in a short period of his life he's converted away from atheism to the idea of god but he's not yet moved from being an observer of christianity to a participant. The reason he's an observer in such an effective way is because Jung, Jung hijacked Christian imagery and symbolism and used it for his own Gnostic form of a fusion between therapy and spirituality. So it's So it's a perfectly reasonable Jungian position to affirm much of the Christian narrative and its symbolism without actually submitting to it.
0: Well, I think at this stage we need to just go through what Jungianism actually is I read Jordan Peterson's 12 rules for life and the biggest problem for me were the um, rather at first very surprising digressions into Jung and I was thinking he takes this stuff seriously that's a bit (laughs) disturbing people are still into Jung I was aware that Jung had tremendous influence people used to talk about a Jung cult Um, well, for decades during the second half of the 20th century. Um, So perhaps you could just explain what it was that Jung believed, but let me just tell you that in my experience of coming to terms with Jung, checking out one of his books, he lost me very early on in the piece. He talks about the importance of dreams and the existence of patterns of dream and patterns of anxiety across cultures, and suggests that these are deeply significant. Well, no shit, but honestly, he's quite compelling when he says that these are obviously significant. The existence of similar symbols across cultures suggests something fundamental about our nature as humans. But then, when discussing dreams, Jung makes this leap from saying, isn't it interesting that people have the same sort of dreams, the same kind of figures that appear in dreams, to saying, we need to pay really close attention to our dreams because they can warn us about dangers that are about to happen. And he then starts talking about how one of his patients had a dream about his fear of falling off a mountain, and he was a mountaineer, and Jung told him, you must not go mountaineering because that dream is trying to tell you something. And the point at which Jung started asserting that dreams are telling us something that we've got to pay very close attention to them, as if dreams have an, a sort of objective reality, almost, or dreams can I- exist independently of us, then he lost me.
1: Jung was a psychic of a kind, a sort of gnostic psychic, and it was certainly yeah, his. That's head-
0: my problem. Yeah, exactly, psychic. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, Edgar and, and Casey. Set- uh, so there's a touch of the Edgar Casey and his oh, automatic yes. writing. Yeah, Edgar Casey the guy who would just allow his pen to to dangle over the paper while he received messages from Atlantis or wherever it was.
1: Well, the beginning of his of his doctoral work was involved in sitting in on séances that one of his cousins was dealing with. So there's a very complex and disturbing overlap between the occult between the unconscious and the hijacking of religion, and he fuses it all in a unique fashion with the intention of offering people a map for personal integration. So it's essentially a self-development program drawing on the consciousness and unconsciousness, spiritual archetypes, and a variety of of other elements. He cobbles together as a magpie, and the trouble is that some of it works quite well. And you're right, if you. I mean, it's true with both Freud and Jung that if you if you impose strict empirical lines of inquiry on them both, they fail dreadfully. But they both produce maps of the psyche that have worked to give people some sense of how you how you manage your own your own struggle. And and in a sense, I think the the three major philosophies around today all set themselves three questions. I and mean, the, the philosophers are Christ- Christianity, Marxism 1.0, 2.0, and, uh, and self-development in the Jungian pattern, um, the, the whole therapy culture. And there they, are three questions. One is, is it okay, a OK, just so
0: stop you there for a second and say it's not immediately obvious to me, or indeed I think to its practitioners, that the self-development thing is essentially Jungian. But I agree that that's it's it's perhaps useful to think of that as a third alternative certainly the notion of gnostic self-development is enormously powerful both in terms of our imaginations and in terms of social life in terms of what's profitable in the marketplace for example but it's not immediately obvious to me that it's Jungian. that just seems too old-fashioned
1: um, well you're 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 right and you're wrong i think in my in my opinion i mean of course you're right it, it's it's it's, it's composed of a wide variety of elements. But I think, I think where you're mistaken is that every time an educationalist talks about releasing people's maximum potentiality, they're essentially digging into Jung's ideas of individuation um, in that he was the person who expressed them most forcefully and with most influence. And whether people know it or not, he's the background radiation that drives most of our therapeutic language and quest um, so uh, so I, I, I think we're both right in that.
0: I'm being a, a bit of a nuisance this time, I'm sorry, but I want to stop you again and say that shortly before Jung, certainly decades before Jung, there were people in America preaching various, sometimes literally gospels, sometimes philosophies, very often manuals of self-improvement, which had nothing to do with Jung, had quite a lot to do with Christianity. For example, the Oxford group, not to be confused with the Oxford movement, who preached a message of moral rearmament that actually gave birth to Alcoholics Anonymous. And that, when I look at Jordan Peterson and I read his bestseller, 12 Rules for Life, what I'm really reminded of are the self-improvement manuals of mid-20th century America
1: you're exactly right of course self improvement isn't limited to jung it's it's a it's a universal human quest but what jung did was to draw a map which people have consciously or unconsciously drawn on and so the, for example the notion of light and shadow existing together without the shadow being objective evil uh, where shadow is a kind of internal darkness That needs reconciling the the reconciliation of of opposites without any repentance is a is a it's a truism in therapeutic and 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 modern culture the polarities of male and female which have to be integrated are the foundation upon which the whole sliding scale of sexual and gender appropriation is based on now It, it would have happened with much more difficulty if Jung hadn't set it as a as part of the furniture of the psyche, which people bought into, the archetypes uh, that that he suggests uh, are found in in all literature and all culture. I, I remember reading one of a book called *The Individuated Hobbit*, which interpreted Tolkien in Jungian terms. And you could, because Jung's system or his his vision had had managed to lay a template on the Tol, on Tolkien, which described the dynamics very well. And so Jung is a great interpreter of the human condition. But the problem is that whilst on the one hand he validates spirituality by saying the idea of God is important because it's bigger than the ego, his God turns out secretly to be the self with a capital S. And therefore all religion, all culture, the integration of consciousness and unconsciousness is all directed at this narcissistic selfish, idolatrous goal of the development of the self. It's individuation instead of salvation.
0: All right, here's a question. Here's a question for you, because it's a subject that you have raised on this podcast before. You talk about Jung's Gnosticism, but to what extent do you think Gnosticism, as the discovery of the divine within yourself, was actually flourishing, or at least bubbling away subterraneously, if that's a word, all the time?
1: So you're quite right. Um, Christianity is, of course, a Gnostic religion. It's a religion of secret knowing that some people get and others don't. Uh, There's always Gnosis in religion. The question for Christians is, is it sanctified Gnosis or unsanctified? And and Christianity says this is proper Gnosis to know the one God through the word and the Logos and the spirit. And again, you're absolutely right. It touches the, the deification of the self which is what at the end of this broadcast they are talking about, the, the orthodox notion of theosis. But there's this very fine line between theosis, our, our becoming divine by inhabiting the Godhead and transformation of holiness, to I am the Godhead. <laughs> and, and it's exactly this fine line that divides Jung from orthodox Christianity.
0: It's also something that divides orthodox Christianity from Catholicism, because John's and Padre is asked about Theosis, or introduce the subject of theosis, and he does say that it's something that the Catholics aren't particularly into. But it's a sharing in the divine, as you say. It does, to me, seem to have a slightly Gnostic flavour. Well, a very Gnostic flavour to it.
1: Well, I think this is part of the problem with East and West losing losing theological touch with each other. A number of Catholic commentators, seeing this, have said, "Well, of course Catholicism does. It's the beatific vision. Or of course Catholicism does because." Uh, the whole process of sanctification is the process of, of theosis. I think it's the case that orthodoxy has managed a quest for holiness in the East slightly more publicly, uh, as part of public orthodox culture, than Catholicism, which has so easily found itself uh, engaging with structures and, and, um, and principles and rules, and, and has had difficulty sometimes with an outbreak of holiness in the laity and, the, and in the clergy. In a way that Orthodox has Orthodoxy has embraced. So we both believe in theosis, but the Orthodox I think is slightly more at ease with it. But the the difference is it's, this is where it becomes important. It's participation in the Godhead by humility self giving obedience, trust, love, and self-denial, which is not the same as self-development in in the Jungian sense. So we could go down the rabbit hole of of Eastern and Western differentiation of theology or or Jung but I think what I'd like to bring the conversation back to is why Jordan Peterson matters. Uh, I think it matters because he's amassed millions of followers who want to listen to him talk about the Bible and about Christianity even though he does it as a friendly fellow traveler on the outside edge of it. This should make us ask the question why aren't our intellectuals and leading Christian theologian thinkers able to do the same thing. I mean, I set myself, I, I asked myself, why can't Rowan Williams do what Jordan Peterson does? Rowan Williams being a, an example of a clever, articulate, intellectual Christian, and I think part of the answer is that Christianity in the West, particularly, has been bamboozled by, by the intellectualism of the, of the Enlightenment, and we've rather lost confidence in two things: metaphysics and the Bible. And Jordan Peterson, as a psychologist, comes across with the most enormous confidence, not in metaphysics, but, but in the metaphysics of the unconsciousness, um, similar but not the same, but also in the reality and the power of the mythological structures of the Bible narratives. And it's partly because of his, his enormous confidence and expertise that he carries people with him he keeps on saying people are desperate to know what the bible says they're immensely interested in it if you can offer it in a way that's all existentially authentic which i think the church has failed to do and the other thing that that, that peterson does is to use the judeo-christian philosophical framework as a battering ram against wokeism in a way that nobody else has done so for example He talks about the Pareta curve, and the Pareta curve is is the principle that that most of the world's goods are going to be owned by a small group of people however many times you reorganize it. And says not only did Jesus say this, but it means all the Marxist utopianism of of, of equality of outcome is nonsense and will always be nonsense. And he uses a mixture of psychology, sociology and Christianity to to undermine wokeism uh, on an intellectual basis.
0: Obviously, I'm very impressed by the following that Jordan Peterson has, and it's not a mystery to me because, as you say, here's a man who is using an intellectual battering ram against wokeism, and so many people feel powerless to challenge wokeism, and he does more than that. He offers rules for living, which are based around the assumption of moral responsibility, both for those around you and in forming your own character and achieving happiness thereby, which is rather different from the message that's preached by the church particularly, although you will, I think, find something rather similar to it in lots of self-improvement manuals. So I think, in a way, Jordan Peterson's popularity is a mixture of things, and it's not necessarily that much bound up with the precise content of his message. I think it has a lot to do with my particular obsession, which is charisma he's charismatic, he's enormously articulate, he's able to deploy arguments from biblical criticism, from sociology, from obviously his own professional fields, he's a psychologist and a clinical psychologist who sees patients, he's read everything, and he's handsome, and self-confident and very very quick that wonderful evisceration of the ghastly Kathy Newman on Channel 4 News is one of the great moments of television in our time so I think his popularity is bound up with all sorts of things and I would point out that you know there are other people out there with a message quite different to Jordan Peterson who have a similar sort of following though not necessarily in the same circles.
1: I, I, well, because I don't agree with you. I find his voice whining and thin. I find his body language unappealing, and uh, and I don't think he's a particularly particularly rhetorically skilled. The reason I think he's fascinating is because um, when he talks about the difference between the sexes or the genders, which is utter blasphemy for wokeism and for most people, he, he, uh, he does it in a way that, first of all, is very close indeed to the Judeo-Christian understanding of complementarity, and he backs it up. Uh, with, with psychological facts and insight, when he talks about hierarchy instead of a instead of a flat horizontal plane, which is exactly the the worldview of Christianity, he does exactly the same thing. In other words, I think people have an instinctive sense for the for the, for metaphysical truth. Uh, you know, uh, we we have a God-shaped hole inside us, and we know it when it's filled. But but he he pr- promotes the Christian metaphysical vision with a with a confidence. Uh, and an understanding that our own theologians and own intellectuals don't have because they mistrust it. They've been taught to mistrust it by their Enlightenment studies. And therefore I think it's astonishing that, a, that a, an agnostic psychologist should turn out to be the most effective evangelist for Christianity that this last decade has known.
0: I think there's a real difference between us here, Gavin, in that I don't find it astonishing. I think Jordan Peterson's popularity has an awful lot to do with performance. I think he is very charismatic and it doesn't matter if an individual component isn't obviously attractive, such as, you know, his voice may be whiny or whatever. He's not a particularly skilled rhetorician. Well, actually, he's very, very quick on his feet. And the way he demolished Cathy Newman showed, this is this wonderful sort of sarcasm that goes with his erudition. And it's there... It's as quick as a flash. And so many of us wish we could do it. And he has a message of self-improvement. And therefore, it's no great surprise to me that he's very, very popular. I think the failure of the churches partly has to do with a lack of conviction in traditional Christian doctrines. Although I think it would be possible to build up a big religious Christian following along Liberal lines. If you got the message right, in other words, if you found something that people really, you know, that, that people really were attracted to, theoretically, I think it's entirely possible. The popularity, the resonance of religious movements has so much to do with the way in which they're packaged. For example, I'm being gripped by this Netflix documentary that's showing at the moment called "Murder Among the Mormons," an extraordinary Mark Hoffman forgery case dating back to 1985. And let's not get into that; it's such a gripping subject, but. It reminds us that Mormonism is growing because Mormonism is up to a certain point coherent. I mean it does ask you to believe even more impossible things before breakfast than Orthodox Christianity, which is saying something, so you've got to believe in the Mesoamerican Hebrew civilizations. But nonetheless, it's growing because it's delivered with confidence, certain amount of rhetorical skill, good organization. Rules for life. I bet Jordan Peterson has loads of Mormon admirers. And it's doing incredibly well, despite the fact that, from a Christian point of view, Orthodox Christian point of view, its message is preposterous. It is not strictly speaking Christian or monotheistic, even because it believes in a multiplicity of gods and all the rest of it. But nonetheless, it's making the sort of conversions that you see happening for example, to Pentecostal Christianity which is, sort of, Orthodox Christianity. But the methods, the message, the packaging, the way of exploiting the anxieties of modern people, and also the way of dressing up very serious ideas as entertainment. It's a massively successful formula, and this is precisely what the churches cannot do. They are boring. For example, Rome Williams is boring, despite the brilliance of his ideas. Now, if his ideas were much thinner, and I know his ideas are brilliant but if his ideas were much thinner but he's had the ability to communicate his brilliance to a wider audience he'd have been a successful archbishop of canterbury which i'm sorry he wasn't we didn't know that his successor was going to be even worse but he wasn't it was a job he should never have had and when he went back to academia he seemed happier there and so i think that's what jordan peterson tells us is that the churches cannot bloody well communicate to a wider audience. Now this is a real hobby horse, but when I listen to, you talk about the whining voice of Jordan Peterson, but listen to the brilliance of what he's saying and the way he delivers it. Now listen to the whining voice of Cardinal Vincent Nichols. He says nothing, and he's not even attempting to engage his audience. He takes it for granted, and if it's not there, he doesn't seem to care particularly, because he's an archbishop and this is the point at which the hierarchy that Jordan Peterson says is so useful in realizing our inner potential once we subsume ourselves into a wider hierarchy of truth this is the point at which hierarchy actually becomes a massive obstacle to spreading a message
1: well, because I, I don't think it, if you listen to and it, it doesn't. But but for the moment, let's go back to say that you, you you see the success in terms of packaging and presentation, and I'm talking about substance. And I want to go back to, I think, to the fact that Christianity is being seriously threatened by wokeism and, and by secularism and Marxism. And the one reason Peterson matters is because using Christian language, Christian concepts and Christian philosophy, the content argument that I'm putting forward, he is resisting this anti-Christian culture very successfully. And whether or not he becomes a Christian himself, I pray and hope he does. He ought to be offering a lesson to Christianity. He's doing our job for us, and we should learn how it's done and do it on our own behalf.
0: Well, let's not pretend that we disagree more than we actually do. Um, (laughs) That wokeism poses a challenge to Christianity is certainly the case. And it's all the more embarrassing because it's such an intellectually feeble, narcissistic and self-indulgent I mean, honestly, compared to the rigorous Marxist intellectuals of a generation ago, it's just embarrassing. But you look at the sort of things that Jordan Peterson says, and it is remarkable how powerful they are. And, of course, lots of his appeal has to do with the power of thoughts as, and this is just taken from his latest podcast, the pain of existence will corrupt you without a saving meaning, And that saving meaning is basically found in responsibility. And he believes that the manifestation of things in their divine form is an adventure that can be sold. And he wonders why the church doesn't sell that. Manifestation of things, I think, means manifestation of all experiences in their divine form or moving towards the divine form, which he thinks is implicit in the very concept of one thing being better than another. So he says it's an adventure that can be sold. But the Churches aren't doing it. But moving towards the greatest good is terrifying. And you can see that in his face. You can hear it because at that moment he's really on the verge of tears.
1: Well, he's he's facing something that Augustine and C.S. Lewis wrote very clearly about, which is this terrible surrender of, of ego and autonomy. Uh, he uh, he said also in this latest podcast, Catholicism is as sane as people ever get. People would more insane without it than they are with it. He's he's very affirming of of Christianity. But of course, one of the things he's done that's most important. Is he's 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 winning or or at least managing the battle for freedom of speech that our own guardians of the truth have rolled over with completely. <laughs> And and so without freedom of speech, there is no there is no euangelion in the public square. Um, and we, we need to be absolutely alongside Peterson and as good as him at representing the need for the integrity of conscience, the, the sanctity of the individual instead of the group, which, of course, is the big difference between wokeism and Christianity and, and what Peterson is defending. We need to be as good as he is at resisting this movement that is that is destroying our culture and our civilization, and the platform upon which Christianity and Judaism can survive.
0: Well, we certainly do, and I think we had an illustration of that this week, just this week, the Supreme Court, it's a complicated case, but the Supreme Court found in favour of a Christian student at Georgia Gwinnett College, um, which is a few miles outside of Atlanta. And basically what happened is that this... Christian student of African heritage, wanted to witness to the Gospel by handing out pamphlets, not extremist pamphlets, and he's very sort of clean-cut and amiable and rather gracious in his bearing. And they said, sorry, you can't do that without going to one of our free speech expression zones, which are sort of tiny patches of ground about the size of a grassy knoll. I've written about this in Spectator USA online. And there's two of them, I think, in Georgia, or were two of them in Georgia Gwinnett College. So he said, OK, I'll do that. And they said, you need the pilot. So he submitted all the literature that he was going to be distributing. And then within about an hour of him taking up his allotted slot on Speaker's Corner, this tiny little space on campus, the police were there saying, you've got to stop because there's been a complaint and he says well this is like free speech and they said ah yes but your first amendment rights or the police maybe didn't say this but the college explained it later your first amendment's rights aren't covered if you are using fighting words that threaten public order which of course he was doing nothing of the sort but this was what georgia Gwinnett college stuck to until it became clear that They were making fools of themselves. But nonetheless, this guy's lawyers very wisely took it all the way to the Supreme Court and you actually have the extraordinary spectacle of Clarence Thomas and all the liberal justices taking the same line, which is that his First Amendment rights were violated. And it has been Jordan Peterson, probably more than anybody else, who's drawn our attention to the intensity with which this sort of Iron Curtain style curtailment of the rights of free speech of, of Christians has become part of everyday life in America. I suggest in this article that for somewhere like Georgia Gwinnett College which I think is a, is a well-meaning institution which is all about self-improvement this is a toxic ideology that's really come from the Ivy League and which they're sort of taking on board in a rather sort of crude way they don't really know how to handle the etiquette of indoctrination and no platforming which is just second nature to everybody at Harvard and Yale. But it's spreading everywhere. And Jordan Peterson is as clever as the people spreading it. And he's even better than many of them at explaining why it's so toxic. What do you think, Gavin?
1: Yes, I I, I agree with that. My, My fear is that he's found, whether it's because, as you quite reasonably say, he's found the stress of public exposure too difficult... Uh, or whether, as I would add, that he's trying to, to take on a, a whole force of, of metaphysical distortion as a thinker without the necessary spiritual resources that I think are required in what I think is a cosmic and metaphysical struggle. Both, I think, are true, but he's in great danger of being overwhelmed by it. And, and um, first of all, I, I hope and pray that he will become a Christian. In, at which point I think he'll find himself surrounded by resources that are, are needed to manage this struggle. Um, but I also think that, that that we need to pay attention to the way in which he has managed to articulate our beliefs, our propositions, our faith, our, but in the sense of universal truth, in a way that shames and ought to embarrass us because we have, haven't have had the confidence to do it with sufficient commitment and, and discover how effective it is and how, how desperately people are longing for that kind of common-sense truth that reflects the way things really are. So he's, he's an enormously important fellow traveller and one I hope will embrace the faith.
0: And you have the paradox that Jordan Peterson, the agnostic, is articulating many of the truths, as he sees it even, let alone Christians, of the Christian religion. Very effectively, while the actual official spokesman, apologists for Christianity, are busy articulating the ideology that seeks to ultimately extinguish Absolutely. Their or if not extinguish it, at least render it completely harmless, something you can sort of pet from time to time in the corner of the room. So, when you listen to Thought for the day, what you hear are bishops, rabbis, everybody except Tim Stanley, it seems, if he's still on it, I hope he is, effectively expressing their support for ideologies that are completely unconnected to Christianity, and, in the case of Black Lives Matter, officially opposed to the teachings of Christianity, and yet they carry on doing it. And, I mean, we've talked before about the appalling Stephen Cottrell, the Archbishop of York. And they do it with such a lack of finesse, and they assume that we all have such a high boredom threshold that, well, it's no wonder that people tune into Jordan Peterson and not Stephen Cottrell.
1: What, what Peterson helps us see um, is that the tragedy of the Church of England having surrendered entirely to, to incoherent workism and And the danger for the Catholic Church, which is in the life or death struggle with workism at the moment yes, it uh, is. And that, and yes that's why it is. I, that's why I think peterson is is so important because of the clarity with which he articulates what I take to be um, orthodox philosophy and morals uh, in in a way that are entirely congruent with christianity um but but um he, he's doing it. Enormously, effectively, in a way that should make us, firstly, ashamed and second, very eager to copy him and, and improve what he does.
0: But when you talk about a life or death struggle with wokeism that, that, that is happening to the Catholic Church, I would argue that that struggle is happening inside the Catholic Church as well as outside. No, 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 I, mean? no I, I meant that. Look, that's yes, that's I mean, look at papal documents. Many of them are incoherent, wokeist ramblings that sound as if whoever wrote them and you know we assume it's not the pope but whoever wrote them has just rolled a spliff frankly that that self-indulgence Oh, good god it really is like the sort of generation of hippies who imbibed young while they were smoking grass
1: So let us then agree that the life-or-death struggle runs right the way through the Catholic Church. And one of the reasons why Peter is so useful is because we can, if you like, be inspired by him without taking partisan sides, without engaging in a civil war in the Church. He seems to me to, to offer a way of redemption, intellectual, philosophical, theological redemption without necessarily engaging in a civil war, which would otherwise be the only way of doing
0: it. I think you've hit the nail on the head, because Peterson's writings emphasise the need for self-sacrifice, the need for self-discipline, all things that don't come very naturally to me, I mean, even less naturally than they do to other people. And you know something, when Francis became pope at first for about the first three months i thought well he's low church he's not into the old mass and all the rest of it and we're not going to never going to like the way he celebrates the eucharist we didn't know he had this fantastically good taste in music incidentally but we're never going to like perhaps the aesthetics of the Bergoglio pontificates but, judging by some of the things, as the Pope said in, initially, we are going to like the directness with which he expounds on the Gospel and the direct way in which he challenges our selfishness. And this, I thought, was going to be the great theme of the Francis Pontificate, and it turned out not to be. He, I remember George Weigel saying to me very early on, I'm worried that he seems very interested all of a sudden in becoming the darling of the international left. And he did, and... People go on and on at me about my obsession with Francis and blaming everything on Francis, but it seems to me extremely sad that that message of self-renunciation based on a very powerful reading of the Gospel text, which Pope Francis seemed to be promising, didn't then materialise.
1: Popes come and go. They, they have vices and virtues, strengths and weaknesses. I think one of the great strengths of, of the Christian faith is a way... It lives within the dioceses, both at parochial and, and episcopal level. And so, I mean, it, it, the good news is it it doesn't, fortunately, for the Pope's sanity, it doesn't depend entirely on the Pope, although he's a very important figurehead. But I think that that one of the things that we should be trying to do is to is to re-equip the Church with confidence at the local level, at the diocesan and episcopal level, and, um, yes. and allow, allow so Jordan true. Peterson allow Jordan Peterson to be our our self-help guide <laughs> if that's not too too, too puerile and uh,
0: find, in, you know, our find our own Jordan Peterson find our own Jordan Peterson this is enormously important I'm sure they're out there
1: I'm, I'm sure they are too well there are a lot of people who having read him are, are living what he says and, and believing. But, you know, the, the the other great thing is that those who are inspired by Jordan Peterson begin to be open to the gospel because he's persuaded them of most of the furniture. That sort of inhabits the metaphysical room that we're trying to introduce people to. So again, he's been the most enormous help to the faith and done so much work for us. But as you say, uh, we need to to encourage other people to you know now that we see what works with Wokism, um, and the Church has intellectuals uh, and also intellectuals who pray. So here is a new a new model, I think, for evangelization in our particular time.
0: But. And I don't want to end on a gloomy note, but I couldn't help being very powerfully affected by seeing the pain that Jordan Peterson's obviously suffering at the moment. He has experienced an extraordinary charismatic experience of attracting a very large following very, very quickly who hang on your every word. And this was something that Max Weber emphasised when he, when he formed his theory of charisma, which is that you've basically got to keep the crowd happy because once it withdraws its approval, your charisma disappears. And the pressure of the sudden charisma, and this has happened to some of the people he's interviewed as well, can destroy somebody. And I think the confluence of health problems and the burden of charisma is having a very worrying effect on somebody whose voice still needs to be heard whether he converts or not. Don't you agree? I do,
1: but one of the things we know from the Christian spiritual tradition is that very often pressure, failure, sin itself brings us to the breaking point. And and if that breaking point is surrendered to God, then we experience salvation. So he's right on the cusp of having reached the limits of individuation as far as it can take him. He doesn't know what to do with his pain, he's terrified of believing in God. Um, Understandably, if he can make it across the chasm by this great act of a mixture of self-surrender and the lure of the love and mercy of God, then he'll experience salvation as well as individuation.
0: Gavin, do you know what I think? I think he should meet you. Thanks so much, and I look forward to our next conversation.